So, Ludwig Sundström, thank you very much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Uh, Ludwig is the author of Breaking Out of Homeostasis, which he first uh, published when he was 21. There's been many, many iterations of it since, but it's coming forward. He's the host of one of Sweden's most uh, downloaded podcasts in the business segment, it's fair to say. Yeah. Shufe Minuta, which is 25 minutes. And then also the co-host of um, a podcast in English called Future Skills, which was one of the first podcasts I listened to alongside maybe Tim Ferriss uh, many years ago when I, when I sort of got into it. And as you'll see with the themes of Ludwig's work, he's really high performer, a bit of an overachiever, but into investing a lot, into lifestyle improvement, into self-development, into really a whole manner of things. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Very good, uh, nice intro. Thank you. Um, and so when I messaged you um, about this, you said, yeah, that's great. Let's do it in about a month because <laughs> at the moment I'm hammered down in stocks. So yeah, I just want to start there. It seems like investing is dominating your life at the moment. Uh, yeah, that would be fair to say. For the last like six months, I've been investing full time and it's a... Uh, it's very intellectually satisfying. It's very fun. Yeah, uh, I've I've been uh, financially satisfied. <laughs> that too. I've doubled up in six months. Wow, so okay. that's very nice. Yeah, obviously, if I can keep that up, it'll be quite nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, that that's pretty unreasonable. Okay. Uh, but the market right now is it's a very good time to. There are so many weird opportunities, and you mm-hmm. have to. It really, you know, it really pays to pay attention to it. Yeah. Because you can have these really weird things happen whether it's trading or investing, and I do both. Yeah. But mainly investing, as in buying a good company and keeping it over an extended yeah. period of time. More value investing than yeah. Anything. Yeah, value investing. And so just the last six months, so you sounds like you got into it after the massive recovery from, from the dip. Yeah, and that's, that's the thing, actually. I actually missed that, unfortunately, mm. because I was so afraid of it before that I actually pulled out of the market. Oh, so no. I was not affected by the corona crisis. Okay. But on the other hand side, I did not get those easy gains uh, at the bottom. I did not, uh, yeah. I, 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 I'm happy to put it on record that I, did not, <laughs> I was not able to buy the bottom. <laughs> the, the most ridiculous easy gains, right? A bunch of my mates who know absolutely nothing about investing made their first investments in their life uh, in companies like Afterpay. This is in the, the ASX. They saw, oh, there's a massive dip. Yeah. Great time to buy. Whereas the rest of us who, are like sort of financially literate and thinking about investing are like no, no no this is this is the first dip there's going to be a much bigger one coming which is what we all thought obviously but um yeah they bought it and then they've like you know 300 x and it's like what yeah. the fuck is this <laughs> you know they're trying to tell you that they're like the investing geniuses when myself similarly to you i actually didn't buy until about six months ago mm-hmm. um when i was like ah oh, damn it maybe we did miss the bottom um, but yeah, so just six months ago, what, what what's your investing look like? Uh, my process? Sure, your process, but also what you're involved in. Well, I have a pretty focused value investing, I would say. Uh, I look across basically everything that seems reasonably interesting. Okay. <laughs> and uh, uh, you were talking about Taleb before and uh-huh. the, this kind of barbell approach where you have kind of 80-20, yeah. maybe 80% good, solid, long-term businesses, 20% high risk stuff, mm-hmm. K- kind of along that philosophy. Nice. Uh, so I do maybe high, high stakes trading with maybe 20% and, and the rest is uh, a few solid positions in 
good businesses nice. that I think you know are just really undervalued. Can you say what makes up your eighty percent position and your twenty percent position? Yeah, yeah. The eighty percent position would be something that I could keep for a long time. In this particular case, I know you had a question about that later, mm. but one company I believe probably will double up in one year is Angular Gaming, okay. which is a gaming company. And uh, where are they based? Malta. Malta, okay. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, what kind of company run? Is it a Maltese company though, or are they just there for tax purposes? Uh, they're, they're, they're for tax purposes, yeah. but you know, most of those casino embedding uh -huh. companies are, are you know, they're a bit fishy. Interesting. So Angry Game, so this is one of your, is that on the 20% side or the 80% side? 80% side. That's okay. like my biggest position. Okay, nice. What, what else? Uh, I have a company called Asigalio, which uh, I got from Ika Sidling. Okay. He's, he's like the first one to invest in that. And he probably did like five times his money. Wow. Man, it, I, something about yourself, which obviously you've, you know, you've earned, but uh, like a serious network high-performing people you know martin sandquist i butchered that pronunciation <laughs> can you say it uh, martin sandquist like you know be a famous billionaire wrote a blog for your book and obviously Mikhail Sealing is a personal friend of yours and co-host of the podcast another amazing investor does having these people around you just maybe it motivates you to do better but do you also just get great tips and insights well for sure i've learned a lot from I'm not that close to Martin, mm. but uh, I'm close to Mika, and he's, yeah. he's been a great mentor to me. Is he much older than you? Yeah, 20 years older. Oh, okay. Right. So um, you've got Angler Gaming as a part of the 80% position. Uh, what other really high-risk, frivolous investments you're making? Uh, well, <laughs> right as we're sitting here, you know, Bitcoin okay. and Ether. Yeah. Seems like it's going to reach an all-time high in like a week or two. Yeah. Who knows? But if that happens, it will probably create a crazy cascade effect. Yeah, for so sure. So that's something I'm looking at just like right now. Okay. Could you explain, it? and is it too much in the weeds to like ask you specifically where you're putting your money and stuff like that? No, I, I just told you. Okay, I'm great. Say, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, so for example... But that, that doesn't mean I'm going to keep them forever, you know. You have yeah. to go with the events. Yeah. That's but uh, at the same true. time... Uh, when you're doing value investing, you're making a risk. You, you're making a risk-adjusted bet. Yeah. What's gonna? What's the expected value going to be? And you calculate backwards, mm -hmm. and what you think, uh, and hopefully you have found something that the rest of the market hasn't quite caught on to yet. Yeah. That's what you're hoping, right? True. So I think both of those are. That's what really, values made. Yeah. yeah, I think those those two examples are really good examples for that. Yeah. See, you and Angular, those two companies. Could you say what Acidia does? It's an energy storage company. Oh, okay, nice. Yeah, I've, saw, I've looked into this industry a bit as well. That's super interesting. It's a massive industry. Okay, and where is Acilia? What, com what country? It's Swedish. Oh, nice one. Uh, Anger is also Swedish. And are they... Um, I'm only looking at Swedish stocks. Exclusively? Yeah, is Swedish stocks, small small, uh, small stocks, okay. small cap. And I'm not looking at any big companies. Interesting. So That's obviously hard. small cap because you can reap a disproportionate upside. Are you looking specifically at Sweden because it's maybe particularly within your realm of competency, or you just is it more exciting to learn about countries and companies in your own country? Mm, no, it's 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 just that it's mo most convenient, I would say. Okay. Uh, what if, makes it more convenient than? Well, you know, we have a we have a very good stock uh, exchange system here, and okay. we have a good 
I don't know what to say, but you have a good infrastructure. It's okay. you have a good ways of finding information if you like doing the analysis. All right. And if you're looking at the smaller companies, then you're not going to be competing with the big masses, mm. and you're also not going to have like professional analysts covering it to the full extent. Yeah. Like if the yeah, I've been working with it full time, so you could say that I am basically analyzing. You know. Yeah. At, at least that's what I've been doing lately. Mm. But uh, at the same time, I wouldn't want to compete with someone who is doing that full time only in one company. Okay. Whereas I'm like looking more all over for opportunity. Yeah, like you're not you're not restricting yourself to one industry. Yeah, example. exactly. Yeah. Could you give us the like, elevator pitch for Angla and Asilia? Well, the the shortest I would say Asilia is just it's probably the leading Swedish actor in, yeah thank you uh, in this industry with uh, energy storage okay. and ESG this huge trend of ESG ESG uh, what's it stand for again eco-friendly social government oh okay so it's like a type of policy yeah yeah and you know that's that's a massive environment trend yeah and this is one of the probably the best position company to really take advantage of this in Sweden mm -hmm. and also it's just such a huge market and has so many so many big series investors behind it already mm. so it's like you you know it's better to bet on the leader than some smaller company yeah when when you don't know for sure and then aggregating that's it's just it's a cost efficient it's a very cost efficient acquirer of casinos and yeah. it has like its own white label solution okay uh, i'm not an expert on this so it's and they have on they have yeah, it's online betting. Oh, okay, online uh, gambling. Yes, gambling. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then, yeah, they don't have all that much information, which is kind of the charm of it, mm. because so many people are afraid of them because there isn't enough information. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people don't want to invest scared, you know, mm -hmm. which makes sense. But at the same yeah, time, you're not going to capture that upside. Uh -huh. And the reason I like them is because they, in my opinion, they have the best relative valuation compared to their peers. Yeah. You know, everyone likes this evolution gaming, mm -hmm. which makes sense because it's like the best company uh, in, in, in the Swedish stock exchange. Okay. It's a phenomenal company. Yeah. But uh, it's very big and it has quite high valuation mm -hmm. metrics. Like you're going to pay 40 times EBIT for it or something like that. Right. Uh, which is quite high. And, you know, the higher the multiple, mm -hmm. the more the, the more you as the investor have to be sure that you're right. Yeah, hundred <laughs> uh, percent. Whereas if you have a lower valuation, then uh, and it's still growing, it's still good. Then you know you don't have you can you have a larger margin of safety. Yeah. So that that's uh, that's the pitch. Do you ever reach out to the people that work there since they are Swedish companies? Is that a part of the research as well? Sometimes, yes. Yeah. It's a uh, you know, are you familiar with the guy Philip Philip Fisher? No. No, it's a kind of a famous investing book. Mm. Uh, common stocks, uncommon profits. Okay. And he, he would say this like channel checking or doing your own due diligence. And that's exactly, that's exactly what you're asking. Yeah. And yeah, I do that sometimes. Nice. But it's quite intensive. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask. Yeah. So from my understanding of the barbell strategy, the 80% is going to be really safe. And obviously you've made the estimation that Angela and Celio are really safe. 
But you could also make the argument that these are risky bets. They are. So yeah. it doesn't it doesn't technically fall into the eighty percent safe range. No, it's you know, it's, no, it's it's definitely not. No, it's definitely not. So That's you could always say that you just have like a, obviously very well researched, but more of a high risk portfolio just overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like I, I don't want to be on paper saying that this is the thing to do. It's mm-hmm. just the way I'm doing it right now. Yeah, right. And uh, you have to change always and yeah. be adaptive. Yeah, which is the whole theme of breaking out of homeostasis, which we'll, we'll, we'll touch on, obviously. Yeah. Um, interesting. I just want to see if there's anything more about investing to talk about. Because actually, yeah, we should ask. So it's been six months, and we were just saying before we started how, uh, well, you were saying that you are really good at deep work on specific themes one at a time, maybe long periods at a time versus interchangeably day on day different tasks and stuff and since your last six months has been all investing what does the i mean you've spoken about what the process looks like are we talking you wake up you analyze reports maybe you talk to people you check prices you see movements is it this day in day out pretty much just accumulating more knowledge pretty much i would say like I, I, i have a lot of tacit knowledge in the sense that I've uh, had investing as a hobby for like more than 10 years. Right. Yeah. So, and, and sometimes in periods I've done it more and sometimes I've not done it at all, mm. but I've, I've always had this like interest for many years. So it's not like I just started out of nowhere, uh, cause I have quite a lot of background mm. knowledge, but the, the way, the way that I've been working with it lately is ma- mainly just a lot of screening and looking for interesting companies. Yeah. Get a big list according to some kind of screening criteria and then um, just narrow it down and then the ones that are interesting enough to start really researching mm-hmm. and then spend the bulk of the time just researching those few companies reading their annual reports or making a forecast what you think mm-hmm. their profits will be three or four years and then calculating the kager backwards yeah wow. and trying to arrive at the valuation yeah and that's and then after that you know like yeah, it seems like a good company or it doesn't seem like right. a good company. And th- that's, that's, that's the work process. But, it? And it's quite fun to do it when you, when you get fast feedback and you get rewarded for it. Mm-hmm. It becomes kind of addictive because you just, you, you're always curious and you want to find that next one. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I should uh, quit it. Yeah. It's like, because uh, you can take everything too far, right? Okay, yeah. And you get to the point where, you know, the point where diminishing returns go down. Mm-hmm. And it would be more intelligent to just shift your focus and work to some other project. Mm. But that, that's also a part of, you know, homeostasis. Mm. When you do something a lot, it gets into your behavior and your reward system. Mm-hmm. And then you just want to keep doing it because you're rewarded for it. And then you don't want to, even though it logically and even pragmatically makes sense to shift focus to something that would, you know, benefit you more, make you more money or make you more happy or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. It's always difficult to make that transition that behavioral shift, which is to break out of homeostasis. And that's, that's something that happens to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but in this case, it's, it's a very good example where I should actually break out of homeostasis and do something else rather than focusing on stocks. And I'm completely aware of it, but uh-huh. it's, you know, it is. You feel like it too much. Yeah, it is uh, difficult. Are you reaching that threshold now where you feel like the point of diminishing returns is just around the corner? Yeah, but you're that's the thing. But you're always hoping that because I mean I already have a bunch of good companies and I yeah I already have my list and I have my watch list. Mm-hmm. 
I could I could really make the argument that I don't need to spend more than 30 minutes per day on it right now. Right. Because I've already done the work and I have my systems. Mm -hmm. So now it's just maintenance. Yeah, now it's just waiting for something. But you still want to go in deeper. That's yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that if part of your 80% is these relatively high risk companies, um, oh no, you did explain it was the Bitcoin and Ethereum. Yeah, interesting. Especially if it's going to could you give me the case for why you think it will pop out in, in a week or two, the price of Bitcoin? Well, it's it's so funny. Yeah. So many people are true believers in Bitcoin and Ethereum. I'm not a true believer. I just want to speculate on it. Yeah, me neither. And uh, no offense to those people, but so many people want to rationalize and argue for, for and against Bitcoin. I'm mm -hmm. just, it's, it's just a big trend. Mm -hmm. And if it... Uh, if it does go above all time, I, and I don't really have any good reason except for strong momentum mm -hmm. and a lot of the strong social media buzz. Yep. And if it does happen, then it's going to be like the craziest viral marketing campaign you can imagine. Yeah. If it does go above and it's going to happen so fast. So probably it's going to be like 25% in a few days okay. and then reach. And then you time. think that hyperinflation of the, of the price of Bitcoin is then going to trigger the subsequent dip because people are like, oh, it's a bubble again. Like last time it hit. Uh, I haven't thought that far. I don't know. Okay. I, I really don't know. I, but we, we'll see. Yeah. But what I do think, what I do think no one is talking about and the best argument for why you might want to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum mm -hmm. is because it's the world's largest legalized networking marketing scheme. Okay. Could you expand on that? Well, <laughs> you have all these people who are basically spending their lives just arguing yeah, all right, okay, yeah. should, and trying to sell people on it. And be yeah. like, buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin, buy Ethereum, buy this crypto, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, I can just passively sit back and let them do the work, you know? Yeah, which is good. This is a massive tangent, but I'm just thinking about it right now. Like a viral network marketing scheme. Yeah. So much of what happens on the internet, maybe Twitter specifically, I don't know if you spend much time on Twitter. I have spent it a lot of time less recently, but during COVID loads, there are, you know, Twitter uh, sub-tribes and one of the big ones is um, crypto Twitter. Indeed. But there is a, um, there's a danger of sort of over-identifying with this crypto persona that you might adopt. And it's part of, it's, it's literally just a part of group projection People want to be part of tribes, and you're willing to uh, you're willing to forego what might otherwise be um, what might otherwise be information that you would acknowledge doesn't contribute to your crypto argument. But you forego it because you're a part of this crypto tribe now, which you love, and you love the fact that you're in opposition to gold, and you love the fact that you're in opposition to the system, and you love the fact that you're this like anarchist future world changing, and then. What I'm thinking about now is this, that's, it, it kind of bleeds back in homeostasis. You tell me if you think it does or not, but being a true individual means you, you sort of don't fall for these tribes and you make your own decision independent of what a million other people might be telling you. And you say that, that just, that thought spurred on when you said network viral marketing schemes. I haven't thought about it like before, but it's totally true. It has <laughs> so much free PR. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it's so, the best PR machine in the world. Yeah, and imagine if you're one of these whales as well, who own thousands, millions of Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, holy shit, you know, like, you just couldn't be more over the moon, the fact that everyone around the world is, bull, is 
just bullish on the price of your apparently future currency. I really like. I uh, will actually. So forgive me if I'm if I'm going to or around no, the place. No. Um, do, do you have anything to say about that? Like, did did that make sense? What I was saying? How? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I think there's a strong argument to be made that that's that's universally universally true, not just for crypto. Yeah. I think you could you could make the same argument for animal lovers or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like I see all these crazy niches on YouTube and Twitter. Yeah. In particular, YouTube and Twitter, I think, are good at like segmenting tribes. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, the engagement of those people is astounding. Yeah. So. What do you make of Eric Townsend's um, take on Bitcoin? That it's true that cryptocurrencies will be the future. But it won't be Bitcoin or Ethereum. It will just be, for example, the Swedish krona, and the Swedish state issues it as a cryptocurrency. The Swedish krona is cryptocurrency. I don't know what to make of it because there, this this stuff is so complex hmm. that I think it's very difficult to have an assessment on this or a strong opinion about it. Hmm. Uh, at least for me, I I, ha I have many opinions, but I don't have any strong opinion on this. Okay, I'm very agnostic to the whole point. Which is also the reason why I'm not invested in it. Yeah, I just, I'm just saying that this could be a, something you could speculate on. <laughs> yeah, for for many good arguments, you know, as as in the trend and the marketing and so forth. Yeah, but I'm not the. I mean, there are many good arguments for Bitcoin and uh, cryptocurrency in, in general, and especially blockchain over the long term. Mm -hmm. I I have no counter arguments to why it's not gonna remain. Mm -hmm. I just have no idea about the extent. It might be overpriced. Yeah, yeah. I, I just don't know about it. Mm -hmm. It's very complex. Certainly. I, I like what Chamath Pali Papada says. Yeah. Like, just put like 1% of your work in Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, I agree I, with that. Yeah, I like, I like that. And I did, I did exactly that, which doesn't amount to much. But nonetheless, <laughs> in case Bitcoin one day is a million dollars a coin, you know, that's not bad. Yeah, yeah, that argument is true. Mm -hmm. Well, let's... um. So when I was doing research to to talk with you uh on youtube if you type in ludwig sundstrom mm -hmm. there's jujitsu videos <laughs> from like 2009 is that you uh i haven't seen the video but it might be so you, I, I did martial arts from the time of like 7 to 19 and but you stopped after 19 yeah well there's okay it must be you then but you're rolling jujitsu in like 2009 oh that's uh, that's early days in in Sweden for practicing yeah. jiu-jitsu. That would be submission wrestling, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. What's the difference? Uh, well, you know, jiu-jitsu, you have a gi, mm. and uh, I've, I've done jiu-jitsu too, mm -hmm. but submission wrestling, that's that's more like takedowns and grappling. Mm -hmm. That's still know. a submission, like your... It's quite it's quite similar. It's just almost like no gi. Yeah, so, it's yeah. quite similar. Very interesting. But you don't do that anymore? No. Okay. It's fun though, but I don't, yeah. I don't do it regularly. Yeah, because I wanted that to sort of lean into what role working out uh, has in your life, because it's it's a major theme of breaking out of homeostasis, and I think that book and perhaps start getting momentum as well. Uh, just from my looking in on the outside, it seems like it's particularly popular in those circles as well, mm. you know, like really physical high performers. It makes did sense, you, I mean. Yeah, but did you experience that? Was it particularly, was it more popular with those types? Uh, I would say it's definitely popular among many people who are into fitness mm. for obvious reasons because it's just, 
it's a synthesis of a lot of the most important ideas from fitness, health, and psychology. Yeah. So it makes sense, you know. Uh, on the other hand, side, I would say a lot of people are entrepreneurs and investors and people who are, are kind of like knowledge workers of some some sort. Yeah. I would say that's that's probably the biggest category of the people who, who have enjoyed the book. Nice. It's, it's, and really, congratulations on the success of it as well. I was seeing recently, I'm, I'm not sure if you can say like how much it sold or whatever, but I was like, it had 114 reviews on Amazon. Mm-hmm. I checked, I'm like, that, that's a lot. Not many books get that many, that sort of feedback, you know, and they're also pretty much exclusively five stars as well. Well, I would say that that's a very, that's a tricky thing because there's mm-hmm. so many testimonials and stuff like that. And it's so much fakery these days. Yeah. Even not, no, not on my, not on my, okay. I'm not saying but just generally, generally I'm saying, I'm saying that the, the level it used to take to write a book mm-hmm. has gone down. So the entry levels are very low. Mm-hmm. So anyone can just put up a book or something. Yeah. Uh, and then you could basically buy your reviews. I'm not saying I've done that and I haven't mm-hmm. done that. I'm speaking about the, and but, the Amazon yeah, like, so, system can't stop it. No. Mm-hmm. And they, so it's been a massive inflation okay. about that. So I think when, yeah, that, that industry has changed so much in the mm. last couple of years and you also don't make a lot of money writing books, mm. but, but for the intellectual feet and so forth, and I'm definitely proud of it. Oh, as right, you definitely should be. Yeah. And you, and I'm thinking as well, part of the, the idea of having a, of, of, of like creating a flywheel, you might not make a hour spent per dollar return on the book, but what it does to every additional venture you you take on it, it inflates it enormously because it's like oh well i wrote this book you know yeah so it's yeah. almost a it's proof that you you are an authority on certain ideas that's right yeah and um, I, I would i would say that the thing that uh, i like most about it uh, or that i'm happy, most happy about uh, in having achieved that mm. is that a lot of smart interesting people have read it and reached out to me mm. so the serendipity from that must be unreal I, yes, that, that's been a very, very, that's been yeah. absolutely a huge effect. Uh-huh. Life-changing for sure. I did have this question exactly on that later, but I may as well ask you now, like, what are standout serendipitous moments that came from publishing Breaking Out Homeostasis? Well, probably being recruited for the Swedish podcast. Okay. Yeah. For Shufem Yeah. Also, so Mikael reached out to you because of the book? Yes. Okay, nice one. Uh, I believe so, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's obviously huge. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a lot of people who have read it and liked it. Mm. So, yeah. Do you ever run into people who recognize you? Not often because I'm so like niche, mm-hmm. but sometimes. I think being, I think being hyper, it's one of the glorious upsides of the internet. The fact that you can be like hyper niche, that if you hyper niche down to, to most things and you write about it online, uh, well, you can create upside from it. You know, probably the thousand truth fans theory. Sure, sure. Yeah. Before in Stockholm, you might have been the only guy who was really, really interested in uh, the themes of breaking out homeostasis, and maybe you had like ten tertiary friends you could talk about it. But once it's opened up to the internet, all of a sudden there's a random guy from Australia, there's a bunch of guys from South Africa, from Mexico. <laughs> you know, all these people. It's like, and they can then listen to you and what you're doing. It's, it's really an amazing thing. There's only outside from that sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, on, on a tangential theme to that, I think it's interesting with 
just the way that when you say the flywheel, mm. uh, I mean, you're referring to kind of the media distribution, right? Like podcasts, email, newsletter, and stuff like that. Precisely. Right? How they all f- um, reinforce each other. Right, right. And it, that's interesting because that kind of constellation of what kind of media tools to use, mm. that's been changing so rapidly over the last few years. Mm. So kind of looking back on this, when I started my blog, that was, I would say, it was a decent timing to start blogging. Mm-hmm. Where, but, where was it? Ah, I don't remember. It must have been like eight, eight years ago. Okay, yeah. Very much, very close to the time I, fi- I wrote the first version right. of the book. So I must have been like 21. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's say eight years ago. That was kind of, if you look on, the, if you look on these things in terms of an adoption curve, like an S-curve, then blogging was maybe in the early, not, not in the very first stage of the innovators, mm-hmm. but in the, like, the early majority part. And then now it's kind of gone quite high. Mm. Podcasts move much faster. Blogs had a very long part. Yeah. I mean, you can still write blogs on websites. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very far from, from being completely saturated. Mm-hmm. But the podcast uh, medium moved so fast in that. Like we were very fortunate, I would say, with the timing of the Swedish podcast. Yeah. Uh, and almost first movers. Yeah, and if you want to talk about that stuff with Tala before, mm. uh, in the sense that things can be complex, I would I would really attribute a lot of the success on the Swedish podcast just just from being early. Yeah. And being very specific with our niche, and even though a lot of people tried to copy it, no one has succeeded. Right. And even even today. Like, I think we have so much to thank or to be fortunate about just from the sense of timing. Right. Yeah. So it's it's difficult to overstate that importance. Uh-huh. But and then to make another example, when we started the future skills, I thought that concept was really good, mm. and a lot of people liked it too. Mm. But it was just too late, I think. Mm. And the competition internationally was much harder, obviously. Yeah. And now, now it's becoming big with YouTube. I'm not very into this, but maybe I'll start. I, I want to get back into the content game, yeah. uh, which I mentioned before. Yeah. That uh, now, you know, the, the, only the podcast channel is basically saturated now because it's so many who have created it. It's very far out on the yeah, scope. It's extremely saturated. But the, the YouTube has a lot of momentum, and it's, I think there's a lot of potential in YouTube. Yeah. And I also think there's a lot of potential in Twitter. I don't really like Twitter, but I obviously see the potential. Hard, yeah. And then uh, email, of course, is nice. And yeah. that, that, I think that's going to be there forever. That's the, that's the golden, golden thing, you know? Obviously, the older your website is, the better it is, the more authority it has from Google, assuming it's been continually updated over time. There's a website out there like kk.com, this Kevin Kelly blog. Oh, yeah. It looks terrible. It, it's just not optimized for design at all. It, meets, it doesn't meet most SEO standards. Ran through Ahrefs and it's like a 85 domain uh, rating, you know, so just a really good high authority because he started it in like the early 2000s, you know, and, and that's the content. And the same with Seth.blog. Oh, yeah, you yeah, it's like the biggest blog, right? Yeah, because I mean, he publishes something every day. And and one of the great things, what like one of the things about being the first mover or or, or just being earlier on in the game, longevity will win over actual quality, you know. To take Seth's bloggers, for instance, you know, it's got so many readers, but it's not necessarily the best quality that's out there. 
you know, or you could even make the case, I, I don't listen to the sweet, I don't understand sweet, just listen to the podcast bit. Maybe you said Shu Feminuta is still the biggest because it's one of the first moves. Who's to say that some of the competitors that came along the way were actually really good as well? You know, they were better, but they were really good, but they never got nearly the same amount of downloads as you guys got. That's true. That's you absolutely know? true. Because it, it's just like the time spent can actually win over quality, maybe in some domains. But again, that's a bit of a tangent. Um, with YouTube, I dabble on YouTube. I think the problem, I think you're totally right as well on YouTube. It's not oversaturated by any means. There is people thought that a few, like two or two or yeah. three years ago. Yeah. But now it's, it's become so trendy again. And for good reason. Like YouTube is one of the, you can get some of the quickest returns. You're, if you make a video that's good enough, yeah, I'm thinking maybe you've seen it. Yeah, what's it called? Um, Orgasmo Breaks. No. It's a funny uh, comedian uh, channel. He started it a few months ago during COVID lockdown. It's up to about 2 million subscribers now. I mean, that kid's life's, completely, kid's life's completely changed. Um, and it's, you know, because of YouTube. Um, and, and YouTube is one of those, and you get paid really well for ads on YouTube. Graham Stevenson, who's a, uh, like, finance, personal income YouTuber. I think he's got bad content. It's really boring, but he's probably the biggest one out there. Uh, you know, the the finance ads cost per thousand impressions are really, really high. As maybe you're familiar with the podcasting, I'm sure that advertising is similar as well, which I wanted to ask you about as well. No, not much actually. But we haven't done a lot of ads. Yeah, and is that just for stylistic reasons or because you just... No, it's, it's, not, it's mainly because we've been lazy with it. Really? We yeah. could have made a lot more money yeah. with it and we can still make a lot more money with it. But I suppose Mikel's like investing is where his income is from. And uh, he's he's well off, he's yeah. well off. As for me, I, I I probably should have done more, <laughs> but I'm I'm just not that interested in it. Yeah, well, I mean, I I do want to ask you about that with book publishing as well, as which you mentioned earlier. But to finish the point on YouTube, I think the problem with YouTube at the moment is its audience. Um, the huge majority of its audience are boys. Oh, um, really? Yeah, it's just boys, either boys or guys in their uh, late teens, early twenties. And what YouTube then is, is a consequence of its audience. And that's why gaming channels, comedy channels, meme shit posting channels are really big and really popular. And then there's a few outliers, but content like I'm thinking of the knowledge project, which is a very big podcast. He also posts his videos on YouTube and he's got barely anyone following him. And I think it's because the, for instance, if you were to put on, uh, put up future skills, audio transcripts on YouTube, or uh, even, you know, breaking out homeostasis interviews and like these sort of things, there isn't a, there's a tiny, tiny niche on YouTube who are actually interested in these things. YouTube is still early in its audience development where more people like myself and like yourself who, who have interests outside of what YouTube is serving, spend more time on the YouTube platform. And then these creators will therefore have um, you know, bigger, bigger reach as well. Uh, you're following what I'm saying, right? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, that's a, that's interesting. Yeah. I should probably look into that more. Mm. Do you yeah. have, do you have some good source? Uh, I wouldn't say I have great sources. Yeah. Cause I, I'm, I don't know that much about it. I've just yeah. noticed kind of the same mm. general theme or development. Yeah. I, I definitely didn't pull that from like official YouTube audience sources. It's pretty anecdotal. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm noticing the same kind of things. So. Yeah. Joe Rogan is a phenomenon in his own right. This is actually quite an interesting tangent. I was listening to a guy 
who is a podcast marketer, right? So he is in the business of just marketing podcasts. I'm not sure how interesting that is as a business, but he's in it. And he was saying, um, the reason Rogan is uh, outlier successful isn't because of his, which people usually credit, well, he's the everyman. He's a UFC commentator and he's funny and he gets on good guests and he's interesting. All those things are true, but that's not why he's the outlier winner. It's because his content's digestible to um, passive listening. So uh, apparently throughout the United States, it's like people don't listen to the music at the construction site anymore or in the office. They just put on like a Joe Rogan. And, and therefore you pick up all this other audience who otherwise wouldn't be interested in podcasts. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm right now, I'm just saying general trends and stuff. <laughs> I, I actually have a, I agree with that. Yeah. But I actually have a little bit of a, an alternative theory. To yeah. That, yeah. Let them... Which is basically two things. First of all, he was probably the first guy mm -hmm. to start a major podcast. He was such an early mover on the medium mm -hmm. before anyone even knew what a podcast was. He yeah. had one. People just laughing at him. What the hell is a podcast? Yeah, so, and he put in a tremendous amount of work. And yeah. then second, he basically piled on new target groups, uh, demographic groups, oh, yeah. on and on and on. Like, do you, do you really... think that's strategic? That's absolutely strategic. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, I don't think he's a stupid guy. I think he's a very smart yeah, guy. But sure. I, don't, I don't think... He, he talks about conspiracy theories because he believes them. I think okay. he does it because he wants to attract people <laughs> yeah. who are stupid enough to believe that. Yeah. And gets on like Post Malone, not because he's uh, stoked to have a chat with him, but because he knows that there's a whole new audience there. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah that's, that's definitely true. And he's also, speaking of first move, he was one of the first guys to film the podcast, which then means it can go on YouTube. And then you cut it up into little clips and all of a sudden you have this serendipity of a guy's looking up a, a monkey video and he sees a Joe Rogan clip and he's like, oh, that's funny. And then he goes to the Joe Rogan channel and he goes, oh, now I'm a new subscriber. You know, that, like that, he was also the first one to do that. Yeah, that's, that's obviously been extremely huge. Like yeah. we were talking about, podcast is, uh, podcast is kind of saturated in, mm -hmm. its own, in its own right, unless you do something very, very spectacularly good mm. and different. Yeah. But I mean, just, just that, that big, nice effect from being an early mover is not there anymore. No. Whereas on, on YouTube, you have a much larger growth potential, it seems. Okay. Interesting. Do you think the growth potential on YouTube, what sort of content uh, do you see as being the, the growth potential? I, I don't know. That's, that's the thing. Mm. I'm, I'm just noticing the overall trend. Yeah. That people want to watch stuff more. Yeah. And people spend less time listening to music as a passive trend, as a passive thing to do now with this podcast. So oh, speaking yeah. of uh, saturation, heard yesterday, a million blog posts are written every day. Wow. Isn't that crazy? The, the amount of, the amount of dead information that just lives on the internet. I think like what you were saying before, if you have staying power or if you, you can do something sustainably or in a way that suits you over a very long period of time, that's, I think all this stuff is huge and it's like a very positive habit or a positive work habit or whatever you want to kind of frame it as. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's definitely a good thing to be doing over the long term mm. because the internet is not going away. Content no. is not going away. Not. Yeah. But the, it's a, for, for anyone who can do something very long term, as I intend to do, mm -hmm. for example, not full time all the time, but long term, I hope mm. to like never, remain never relevant. removed from the game. Yeah. yeah, I hope to be relevant for as long as I can see into the future. Yeah, yeah. Just 
whether whether for pragmatic reasons, but but also for the creativity of it and for fun, and to kind of stay engaged in that game because it's fun. Yeah. But we'll see. You know, no one knows how, what I'll be doing in the future. But it's something that I would like to do. Uh huh. When when you talk about getting back into content, do you have ideas for what it might be? I have <laughs> I have a tremendous yeah. <laughs> uh, Nothing but ideas. I have a tremendous amount of uh, articles and stuff like that that I haven't published. Really? I'm sitting on written? Yeah, pretty much. I'm sitting on like 500 articles. How the hell do you have that? Why did you never publish them? I don't know. (laughs) Because, I mean, start getting momentum obviously is like a a legacy blog of of sorts. Yeah. Like it has good authority for you to keep posting on it. Yeah. Is that where you would post it, you think? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because you do have a personal website as well. Yeah, but that's uh, I'm I'm not sure what I'll do with that, mm. um, except to just have it as an overview site. Yeah, maybe something in the future. It's a good landing page for anyone like myself, like trying to do some research about you. Yeah, but well, that's definitely a tip for anyone listening or watching. Mm. If you don't own your own domain name on the internet, your own name dot com, mm-hmm. uh, then do it immediately. Yeah, totally. <laughs> that's that's like the simplest free launch on the internet. Yeah. I, I should I should actually definitely do that. <laughs> I, I wanted to do it. So my, my Is blog, it taken? Uh, it wasn't taken. I have a hyphen in my name. Oh, okay. So I did it with the hyphen, it wasn't taken. I did it without the hyphen, it was taken, which is fucking weird. My name is Ryan Faulkner Hogg. I didn't think there are other Faulkner Hogs that lived in the world, but nonetheless, and I ended up taking out. I, I really, my blog's my favorite thing, um, like of the work that I've done, but the URL's stupid, so. It's actually quite a shame, <laughs> you know, I wish, because you're totally right that I wonder if you have any thoughts about start gaining momentum, if you would prefer that it was livingstonesfilm.com? Uh, in hindsight, mm. I would, Yeah. but now it's a bit difficult to change. Maybe I will change it. Mm. I, I don't know how to do that, but maybe I will do that. Um, can I ask you about uh, book publishing? Uh, sure, I'm not an expert on it, but... But you've dabbled, nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, I have a book. Um, what do you what do you make of self publishing versus going through a, a publisher? Well, it depends on what's what's the objective. That's a good question. Actually, the objective is to sell as many books as possible, not about income, but just to get it out there. Oh, well. in that case, I think unless you're a very good unless unless you enjoy social media marketing and mm-hmm. stuff like that, which I don't really do, mm-hmm. uh, unless you do that, I think you should probably try to do do it with a big publisher. Right. Because they then they can do that work. They got the network. Yeah, and they can do that work for you. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I would probably take a big chunk of it too, mm. unless you can get a good book deal. Yeah. But it's not. I don't think it's that easy to get a high-paying book deal. No. But maybe you can. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, side, self-publishing is easy if you believe in your idea and you just want to get it out, and you have a big audience or you want to build an audience or or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And that's the simplest thing. What's your plan with? Um, break out of SS when you get the the print run. Uh, I'll, I'll that will be self published. Yeah. Okay. And if I, I do another book later, which I probably will at some point in my life, mm-hmm. that's definitely going to be by publisher. Okay. And you say that already definitely would be by publisher. Yeah, because I've, I've you know it's it's fun to do different things, but uh. the older you get and the more you kind of know yourself mm. and realize what your strengths are and so forth. You know, it's just better to outsource the stuff you don't like to someone else. Yeah. <laughs> so that you True. can do more what you're good at and what you enjoy. Yeah. It, it's good to learn all that stuff, you know, from a self-development perspective. Mm-hmm. But if, if uh, just in hindsight, looking at it pragmatically, 
I want to probably take it back. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to, I, I wasted so much time doing stuff with Bintan and Dali. Ah, yeah, that, that must be frustrating with Bintan. Yeah. Um, I wonder about the, uh, on Audible, will you read it yourself or will you get someone to read it? Or do you plan on putting it out as an audiobook? I don't know. It, it depends on how much time it takes. Okay. Interesting. Do you think it would make a big difference? Um, which, what would make a big difference? Uh, in terms of the people reading it and li or listening to it, buying it. Oh, yeah. An um, I think, I don't have any sort of um, hard data to back this up. Yeah, I think reading your book is, um, no matter who you are, tiny, tiny, tiny book or massive book, there's only upside from it. Because it's the type of thing you do once that can iterate as many times as people buy it. Um, and I know myself and my girlfriend, I mean, we listen to more audiobooks than we read, for sure. All right, that makes sense. Yeah. But, but you're always like, not you specifically, I mean, just general, mm. uh, you're always biased towards what you are yes. familiar with. Definitely. And for me, uh, I basically don't listen to podcasts. Really? No. <laughs> I don't. It's all very. Only, only when people send me specific recommendations. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm a reader. Mm -hmm. I read a lot and I read very efficiently and fast, mm -hmm. but a lot of people don't like to read. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of hard for me to relate with that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Well, if I was to just take a wild guess at your audience, uh, people who are likely to purchase Breaking Out of Homeostasis, they will likely know you through Shukamanutha or Future Skills, which means they listen to podcasts. Now that's not all the audience, but that will be a certain chunk of the audience that makes sense and then in addition you said before it's like knowledge workers that were interested in the book sort of high performers these people are also listening to podcasts um, they might have a lot more um, um, of a of a hard filter like like yourself for what actually is something you end up listening to but but yeah i, I just think the idea of of um, releasing an audiobook is only upside you know i'm not sure how many pages breaking out of having spaces is it's like 300 around okay Maybe it takes 10, 11, 12 hours, probably of, of runtime. So maybe it takes 20 hours. You wouldn't edit it yourself. Not a bad day's work if it sells a thousand copies, you know? Um, I mean, but. It's a good point. <laughs> that, that, that's, that's, that, that's also me, again, being biased. Like, I, I kind of. I, I like the idea of if you create something, um, you just want to give it every chance to be consumed. Yeah, it's a very good point. Mm. Uh, I think, uh, thank you for the advice, and I think I will most likely do it. Yeah. When uh, I do all this stuff, nice. which would probably be. Uh, I have another project I have to finish first. Yeah. But I'm not have, investing related. No, it's it's the Swedish uh, online course. Oh, so you're you're going to run a course? No, I already do. Oh, no, tell me about it. Sorry, I wasn't familiar with. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's a, it's in Swedish. Oh, okay. So it's fine. Yeah, exactly. It's a Swedish investing course. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's, uh, it's quite nice. And we're doing it the third round now. Mm -hmm. So we already have two two uh, cohorts. Yeah. Or whatever you call it in English. Yeah, exactly. Cohort. Yeah. And uh, now we're going for the third. And there's a lot of stuff to be updated. Okay. But it's been extremely well received. Nice. And I, I think it's... We were talking about timing before. Uh -huh. I think it's pretty good timing. Yeah. Because I'm not sure if we could have the same success if we made an international one. Mm. But in terms of this being in Swedish and uh, your well-known figures, Mikkel's a well-known figure as authority. Yeah. Yeah. So it, uh, I think it it worked better. Yeah. 
probably. No, that's cool. I, I'm from what I've seen from the outside, the coursework for people, uh, for for content creators. Needs to be a better term for that, but like I'm not sure if you're familiar with David Perel or Ali Abdal. I've seen David Perel on Twitter. You would have seen him on Twitter. Uh, I don't know the other person. So Ali Abdal's big on YouTube um, and Twitter, and David Perel is obviously big on Twitter and writing, and they're they're both my age, so they're 25, 26 year old guys, and they um, make a lot of ad revenue from all the different things they do. But they actually make the most money from the coursework, yeah. So it's I, I don't know exactly how I feel about it. I think if you're genuinely like an expert and genuinely adding value, then that's great. But as I'm sure you've seen, like there's a lot of snake oil salesmen out there who are like selling you the next dropshipping course or whatever. Yeah, it's it's always t- difficult for that. But I yeah. think I think there's a there's a general trend towards online courses, and I don't totally. think it's going to stop because so, the education system is just so mm-hmm. bad. Uh, and it will inversely correlate the more that people decide not to go to university and universities become more expensive and then the value of a degree is less and less. Yeah. Inversely will be online coursework will be. And also niche, niche type of knowledge, mm. I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm sure it's the case that if you participate in your you know, course on investing, you're going to come out on the other side a more literate investor than if you took a three-year finance degree or something like this, you know, which is crazy. That's the case, but, but it's true. Definitely more practical experience anyway, mm. as opposed to like reading. There's nothing wrong with reading, but I'm, I'm just saying there's a lot of fluff mm. in university. Yeah, stuff Where, that you didn't need to know. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So that that's the main difference. Mm. But yeah, online course is interesting. And uh, I want to make one for my own site too. Nice. Like we talked about before. And and your own investing course? No, no, for breaking out of homeostasis. Oh, okay. Or not specifically about it, but tangential to that theme. Yeah. All right. I, I'm, I can see definitely the demand for that. I, I wanted to ask, it's a, it's a more of a personal personality question about you specifically, because you published this book when you're 21. Mm-hmm. The theme of the book is very ambitious. You know, it's be disciplined, do different things, test yourself, break out of your comfort zone, all the sort of things that your, your typical 20-year-old Swedish guy is not thinking about you know they're just playing a lot of fifa and um boozing a lot and hanging out like not not spending time thinking about high high resolution ideas and especially Mm -hmm. not writing them so what what was it was there some moment that happened to you that differed you on that path or have you just always been inclined more intellectually (laughs) that's a good question yeah yeah (laughs) it is a curious thing uh have you thought about it uh, no, I was always very interested in philosophy and stuff like that yeah. from in my teenage years, and I read so much. I read so many books. Okay. I read hundreds of books yeah. over the last couple of years. Yeah. I've read to the point where I, I, it's hard for me to find a good book anymore. Wow. Yeah, unfortunately. No, that's terrible. But well, I, I, I was reading. For you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I would like to hear them later. Yeah. But I was reading so much in that period, mm. and that was. It was very intellectually rewarding and so forth. And then uh, the more I read the philosophy stuff, it kind of emanated into biology and genetics and physiology mm. and just wanting to make my own philosophy for self-improvement and self-development. Mm-hmm. And then I just did that. I just read very widely about stuff that interested me and I took the best parts and I made my own philosophy. Mm-hmm. And 
that's <laughs> that's the result you know yeah but was there so, so it is the intellectual part like you were just someone who was reading a lot as uh, a teenager and you no, no I, I wasn't i wasn't reading very much as a teenager mm. it was I just went into that really hardcore mm. around the time I was like 20 or something. Mm. And I just got really into self-improvement for a couple of years. I mean, I'm still interested in it, but I was like mm. super hardcore into it we, for we, a couple of years. Were your friends like looking at you, look at me, what the fuck are you doing? Oh, you for know? sure. Yeah. And was that, was that something that was hard for you to, to deal with? Thinking, oh, wow, <laughs> I have such different tastes to my friends. Uh, um, kind of, but I, I think I'm kind of a contrarian by nature. Okay. So I, I've always thought of it in my own way. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like I started thinking in a new way all of a sudden. Yeah. It was more like, I want to do this and I'm going to do it this way. Nice. And then I don't really need your approval. I'm not going to be rude about it, but I don't really need your approval to do what I want to do. Mm. Where, where do you think you got that confidence from to, to back yourself? <laughs> Well, I, I didn't really have it. I just no. build it up as you go. Yeah. Well, what I'm getting at here is there is like a, a nature versus nurture argument. Yeah. That is a thing that I've been thinking a lot about lately. Are you just naturally, you know, like contrarian? Like, yeah, I think I am. You hear people talk about stuff and you're like, I kind of want to take the opposite side of that argument. You know? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I know I do that all, all yeah. the time. No, not, not that I have to do it. Yeah. But I don't need to think opposite, mm -hmm. but if I have a different opinion, I'm not afraid to express it. Yeah. And uh, I, we can agree to disagree. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't, don't have to agree. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Breaking out of homeostasis is the idea of just edge work. You, you exist in the average and all of your benefits come at the edges, at the tails, outside of homeostasis. And the key to you know, life is variation, which I think is a really nice theme that runs through the whole book because that's something I've inherently always done. It's, it's just nice. I heard this in Taleb as well, and I've heard it in you. It's nice to be told that that's actually a really good thing. I hate um, routine, schedule. I do it, but I'm very happy to change it. It's good to hear that this isn't a bad thing. So can you give a technical explanation for why staying on the treadmill a few minutes longer when it hurts the most De it develops the prefrontal cortex. Well, if you want to get super technical, that would be quite hard because not even like the best neurosurgeons and neuroscientists know about it because mm. it's super complex. But there are theories. Mm. The very simplest explanation is just that you're you're in you're in your homeostasis autopilot most of the time, mm. and it's not until you push through that plateau where you change your hormones mm. and you go into the very edge of it, like you were saying where you break out of homeostasis or you uh, you really push yourself and uh, your body starts signaling to you like, hey, stop, it's hurting, mm -hmm. or it's getting boring. It doesn't, to make, to make the example of the treadmill, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be on the treadmill. It could just as easily be reading a book and you, you become mentally fatigued. So it's about pain tolerance. Mm -hmm. It's about physical pain tolerance, emotional pain tolerance, or psychological pain tolerance. And these are different, uh, these are just the way that I describe it, mm -hmm. but uh, it's just different thresholds where it becomes boring or it starts hurting or it just feels emotionally bad. Yeah. And when you push yourself more there and you force yourself through it, it activates the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that is the executive part, the executive functions that controls the other ones. And it forces you to really 
use your quote-unquote free will. Uh -huh. I don't really believe in free will, okay. but if free will existed, it would be using the prefrontal cortex and using, doing that. Mm. So and, and the prefrontal cortex is where those adaptations are made. Yeah, the adaptations I mean, only come when the stress is so severe that the brain's telling you, you need to stop this. And by then not stopping, the brain says, well, next time we've got to be prepared for more. So exactly. Adapts. Exactly. And, and that, and but you're, but you're, you, yeah, you're using the prefrontal cortex. I mean, you cannot push through a plateau without using your prefrontal cortex mm -hmm. because you're going to quit. The autopilot response is to quit. Mm -hmm. But if you really force yourself to do it anyway, then you're using the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. And that's the imperative part of it. And it doesn't have to be a treadmill. It could just as easily be, you know, doing something that's boring or painful or mm. whatever it might be, you know. It doesn't even have to be something that you're afraid of doing. It could just be changing your emotional state or mm. your feedback loop. I think a lot of people who have read my book and also talked about it, they overemphasize the part about breaking out of home as being about specifically discipline or fitness and so forth. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's imperative and an important part of it, but the philosophically speaking, or from a definition standpoint, the real thing is just changing your feedback loop. So, uh, we were talking about before, like, for example, investing, mm. that's a very intellectual activity. And if you've done it for a long time, and you like to read stuff, you know, yes, yes, it can be a bit hard for the brain, because you have to force yourself intellectually mm. but at the same time once you've done it for a long time it, it can be like kind of sitting back you can i'm not, not going to say that you can be lazy with it but you can do it the, the more you know it the more you can rely on your pattern recognition to do it for you yeah uh, and it still requires hard work and a lot of time but it's not necessarily that you push yourself every day on the other hand side uh, now i my basic emotional state and basically physiological state, my homeostasis, is to just sit and read reports right now mm. and do stuff like that. It's not hard for me. If someone gives me like a 100-page report, I can quite easily get through it. It doesn't require a lot of motive. I don't have to be motivated to do that. Because you've, you've gone through the hard adaptation already. Yes, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I have, have so much momentum with it. And I'm, I'm having a pretty strong winner effect in the sense that I'll be rewarded for it. Yeah. So my, my baseline motivation to do that type of work mm -hmm. is very high. Mm. So it's, it's very easy, you know? Whereas if, if, I, if you had talked to me six months ago and someone would say like, oh, read this 100 page report, I'd be like, uh, no, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, it's gonna be too hard. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it would be really yeah. challenging and I would feel really uncomfortable and you know, I'd really struggle to like get through it. Yeah. But on the other hand side, it, now that I'm in this kind of feedback loop of homeostasis and my reward system is uh, geared towards this mm -hmm. it's so easy for me to continue but if i start doing the content stuff again then that's that would be like breaking out of homeostasis and really changing my feedback loop from being very analytical and so forth into being more maybe emotional and uh using those kind of parts of my brain more mm -hmm. being more creative and doing that creative work where you're used to writing and editing and stuff like that yeah consistently just putting content out but that's a completely different type of feedback loop. Yeah. So I just want to emphasize that, that uh, I think the, the major thing about breaking out homeostasis is just changing your feedback loop and getting into a winner effect. Those, I think, are the two most important takeaways from the book. Mm -hmm. And that's also something that I want to emphasize more 
in, in a future book and maybe in this course and I will maybe one next. Nice. Perhaps breaking out of homeostasis is it, it feeds into a lifestyle philosophy really well. I think the, so. Because the idea of changing the feedback loop is much easier for someone who is self uh, relies on themselves their income versus someone versus someone who relies on uh, an office location and whatever their task is for an income. And I just imagine that as time goes on and the themes of homeostasis of breaking up homeostasis um, go forward, like you might see that become a much more strong theme that's affecting your work. It's like, yes, you need to be breaking out of certain feedback loops and re reorganizing where your homeostasis is. And that a big part of that is what you're working on, where you're working, uh, you know, what time of the day you're working. And you, like, you don't have that flexibility if you're in an office. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Mm. It's uh, you would have to. Uh, I think I'm, I. I think I even say this in the book. Mm. Like it can be quite hard to get into a winger effect uh, when when you you know when when you have so much of the same. You have to if you want to do that. You need to maybe find if just to go with your example of mm -hmm. staying in an office and having a normal routine. Mm -hmm. If you can't get into some sort of feedback loop where you get rewards and uh, constant feedback so that your motivation becomes higher, then you need to find it in maybe a hobby mm. or some sort of new interest or yeah. somewhere where you can see gradual improvement. And the best example is really, or the simplest example is someone who is new at going to the gym mm -hmm. and you have all these newbie gains in the beginning and you don't, it just comes quite easily. Yeah. And it's very easy to be motivated when that happens. And it's also raising your baseline motivation that's why a lot of people like going to the gym in the beginning yeah but sometimes maybe quit after a while when it stops becoming easy mm. to make that extra incremental yeah effort yeah that's, that's a really good example we we did speak about this before we started recording but you can see as you're explaining that why i made the comparison to anti-fragile the idea of of anti-fragile is that rather than being fragile where you easily break or robust where you don't break but you don't improve you uh, improve from disorder and the whole point of breaking out of homeostasis is to improve is to become in a sense better at adapting to harder things that come your way that's true and that's exactly the point of being anti-fragile your your threshold for disorder incrementally raises every time you do something that is a little bit that hurts you a little bit the gym is the easiest example uh, you know, I go and I and I lift some weights. The muscle in the short term is hurt, but it grows back stronger. Indeed. And then next time, my threshold's a little bit higher. And the point is to never exceed your threshold because if I try and bench two hundred, you know, I might choke myself. And then it's like, well, you've you've exceeded your threshold, so you're not going to improve from that at all. Um, but I, I just wonder before if anyone's ever highlighted to you the similarities between anti fragility and and breaking up homeostasis. Uh, no, not before you, but I could see how someone can say that mm. as an example is that if you want to start your podcast Then you might do it because you want to profit from some upside mm. and In my opinion, that's how I would define anti-fragile. You want to benefit from some weird upside event, you know, mm -hmm. or you know serendipity as you put it. Yeah, whereas uh, What I want to emphasize is the changing of the feedback loops and the changing of the behavior yeah and uh, changing your emotions and stuff like that. That would be more of the breaking out of homeostasis part. Mm. 
but as for what you were saying before about uh, uh, you know for example growing back the muscle that i think i think the best uh, concept for that is allostasis or allostatic load mm. versus allostatic overload in sense of both breaking out of homeostasis and anti as you explained it uh, the, the example there is you want to sustain allostatic load for as long as possible, but you don't want to have allostatic overload. Can you define what allostatic is? It's a, it's a, the process where, so uh, it's a process where you have homeostasis, where your body is in the same state all the time, mm -hmm. and then you have allostasis, which is the process, the iter iteration process between challenging yourself, getting feedback, pushing yourself, sort of what I call breaking out of homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you have you have that, and then allostasis is a process that's like my body can adapt to it. Okay. And if you push yourself too much and you have too much stress, then you will break down and you will have allostatic overload. Mm -hmm. And that's that's when you you know when you do, when you sleep like two hours and then you go really hard in the gym and then you get super drunk, mm -hmm. then you're gonna just crash. Yeah. And uh, th because you've overloaded your system and your body, and uh, it's very unhealthy to do that. But if if you instead of, I don't know. You could, you could maybe, I'm not saying you should do it, but mm. I'm saying you could do it and it wouldn't hurt your body if you maybe slept two hours and then went to the gym for a very brief cardio session. Right. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just pointing out as an example mm -hmm. that your body could probably take it without being hurt. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas if you did the other thing, it would be way too, too far. And that A lot of people don't understand this distinction. So I know some people are like, oh, you can't break out of homeostasis because then you die. No, no, no bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, no, no shit for you talk. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not about wiping out. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. So if you don't understand that concept of allostasis and, you know, the, the kind of Goldilocks level of how much optimal stress you want to have in your life, the kind of the switch between pushing yourself and relaxing, you can't push yourself all the time. You have to relax as well. Mm. But uh, you want to do that in many different areas. And that's the whole, the whole philosophy of that is yeah. my... Breaking out of homeostasis. Tell me if, if I've understood it correctly, uh, you're um, highlighting the difference between breaking out of homeostasis and fragility. While, while the purpose of antifragility is serendipity, essentially, you just want to maximize your potential to good things, whereas breaking out of homeostasis is almost targeted improvement. Yeah, I think that's a good Could that be a, is that? Yeah, I like that parallel. Okay, yeah. nice. You mentioned that. You got really into philosophy a lot, yeah. Um, sure. And I wonder if this is a this is me, Mike, making an assumption, projecting an assumption onto you. Is was Nietzsche particularly influential? No, I've actually never read a book for him. Okay, I've only read a biography. Okay, but people have made that uh, comment. The what's it called, like Sarasutra? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I could totally see the distinction. Because yeah. I, I know about it, I haven't read the book, but I know, you know, just from reading posts on the internet and stuff, mm -hmm. I know what it's about. Okay. And it's very, yeah, it is very similar. And people have that, okay. But it's, uh, it's actually, I have actually never read it. I just thought that would be an interesting sidebar. I'm curious why you haven't read it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for someone who's looking for books yeah. and who has a, you know, a insatiable curiosity, I would, I would say that going down the Nietzsche, Carl Jung, um, I read a lot about Carl Jung. Okay, yeah. Jung. Not not specifically Nietzsche so much. Okay. Well, Nietzsche will compliment uh, the your your Carl what you've learned about Carl Jung. Mm. Like uh, Nietzsche was one of Carl Jung's biggest influences. 
you know, came just before. How do you think, has, has the, the relevance of the message of breaking up homeostasis changed in the years since you first published it? Do you think as a sort of society, we're teetering further away from the average or is this something that sort of remains constant? That's a, that's a very good question. Is, is that the right question? Yeah, it's okay, a very right. good question yeah. too. I mean, it's a complex question, but I think I think there's like two parts of it. To begin with, is it constant or teetering away or so forth? Mm -hmm. I think if you want to talk about it uh, in terms of economics and stuff like that, mm. it is constant because you know there are power laws at work. Mm. You know, there's always going to be the one percent. Because that's just mathematics. Yeah, any competitive domain is going to shift to the top. Yeah, yeah and the, to to that extent, uh, society is becoming more unequal, and it's becoming the more internet is spreading, and the more it becomes about building internet companies and stuff like that, because it's a very scalable business model, and you can have these networks effect network effects sometimes, mm. kind of like I was talking about with Bitcoin before, in the sense that. My take on it is that it's the biggest legalized network marketing scheme in the world. Mm -hmm. So, you know, th that can have quite strong network effects in terms of sales mm -hmm. uh, and marketing. And so the more, the more digitized the economy becomes, as we've seen with the software as a service business model, you know, the more network effects come into play and the more unequal it becomes. Companies like Tencent, Alibaba, Amazon, you know, and many others, but those in particular. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it becomes, they become huge due to these network effects. And, you know, how did Jeff Bezos become so rich so fast? It's because of the incremental, I mean, the non-incremental growth mm. of those network effects. And that's... going to take all domains. Yes, and that's, that's just what's going to keep happening. So society's going to get a lot more unequal mm -hmm. because of that. And there's no way to change that, I think. Uh, not that I can think of anyway. Yeah. So that, that's the first part of it. And then the second part in terms of moving closer or further away from the average, I would say uh, I'm more optimistic about the future for people who are quote-unquote homeostasis breakers, mm -hmm. people who are into self-improvement and just have it kind of as an innate state to learn things and be curious and not waste your free time, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those people, it, I think you, the future is just going to be quite bright. On the other hand side, for a lot of people, most people who aren't into that sort of stuff, people who just tend to waste their free time and do stuff like gambling and playing games and mm -hmm. watching a bunch of days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing that in moderation, Yeah. but it, as long as you work hard, but, it, but most people who do that aren't hard workers. Mm there's kind of a correlation between the two, you know? Yeah. Uh, so most people just kind of waste away their time. And that's, you know, that's just going to make things more uneven. Yeah. And also because we have so much of an easier life all the time. Life is not getting any harder. True. We have less and less, like, challenges in our everyday life. And yeah. we can isolate ourselves more and we that's sit still a lot. Yeah. And we use the computer and all this different stuff. But fundamentally, we're basically cavemen. Mm -hmm. We need these challenges, yeah. whether it's intellectual or physical or emotional or psychological. But you need these, you need this stress to become mm -hmm. stronger, and you need to break out of your homeostasis yeah. more. And the more you can do that, you know, obviously you want to live a kind of lifestyle where that happens in a natural manner. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to do that. And uh, if you can kind of 
know how your body works and how the brain works and stuff like that and you can push yourself and in different ways then you know and you can do that consistently throughout your life you can be more adaptive and that's that's gonna pay off huge i think yeah so i mean but but the thing is it's very hard to do that and you have to really make an effort at it and, and you have to do it over the long term and understand how to do it mm. and most people just don't care enough to do it or they they don't have the passion for it i don't know yeah or, or even even a part of it as well they have never been introduced to the idea of this being another way that you can approach your life mm. you know like i think you just framed it really brilliantly by the way basically describing uh, invert relationship between people that are going to continue the self-improvement and then the other people who you know or i brought meet you the herd where life is just getting easier and easier and easier and therefore if you're never uh, stress tested and things just keep getting easier then the threshold that can break you gets lower and lower and lower and lower yeah and, and you become and stupider yeah you're not you're and not it can get to the point where you're you're as fragile as a piece of glass and someone disagreeing with you can actually put you into a physically stressed emotional state it's like well that's <laughs> that sort of fragility yeah you don't have any character it's yeah you like you've got a fucking steep hill to climb if you want to try and realize your potential and actualize yeah uh but i think i think you've described that really well yeah and the, the, just the, the gist of it is that you know we're, we're getting an easier life with, with food catered home and sitting in the sofa working at the computer all day mm. and yes it's nice but at the same time the more of com the more comfort you have built into your life the more responsibility you have as an individual to push yourself and put, have these kind of uh, whether it might be creating content on a consistent deadline or whatever it is to push yourself mm -hmm. or it is pushing yourself hard in the gym or it's reading a lot of books or it's starting a business yeah some 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 kind of project where you're learning and pushing yourself and becoming smarter and working harder those kind of things you need you need to take more responsibility for having these things that break you out of homeostasis yeah breaking out of homeostasis is just about activating your brain and body that doesn't mean you're going to become successful mm. i mean you can you can it can make you happy and give you meaning which i mean you feel you have a sense of purpose and meaning when you are learning new things and mm. improving right that makes you feel good, but at the same time, it doesn't mean you're going to make money. Mm -hmm. Those are completely un uncorrelated. Mm. But obviously, someone who is pushing themselves more likely to do that. But it's, uh, uh, I, I'm just saying, there's like a huge distinction between activating your brain and, for example, I talk about the four pillars of wakefulness: mm -hmm. goal orientation, novelty, variation, and surprise. Those are things that activate the prefrontal cortex in a natural way. And you actually have all four of these when you do st stuff in the stock market, if you like that. Mm. Because you have all these surprises, and obviously you have a goal to make money. Mm. And then, you know, you have variation in different industries, and you're always learning new stuff because there's so much to learn. It's like a game that you're always improving at, and yeah. you're never finishing it. And that's just activating the brain, and it makes you feel good. But it doesn't mean you're going to make money. I wonder, do you think uh, the... Because it strikes me that people working in... Uh, investments especially if they're working for themselves and their income's coming from listening but even working in investment banks and um and institutions there there are certain like personality types and like really overachievers high performance that tend to gravitate towards these fields and i don't think it's got i don't think the only reason is money i think 
you actually just answered it there by saying that like investing in the stock market gives you these four things which also correlate with someone who might be an overachiever do you think that's like a fair assumption to make uh, that, I, would, I would agree with that yeah because people always say like why are all the best people going into banking and financial institutions when they could be going into physics or mathematics or science and it's like that's totally true and and, and it's a valid point you know you don't want your, you don't want your smartest people all going off to be management consultants and, 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 and investors, but it might be true that they do go there, but maybe not just because of the money, because it's like, that's actually just where, that, they're the fields that are giving people the most. You know? I don't know about that, but there's there's a point to it. Yeah. But uh, I, yeah, you can argue both ways, really, yeah. I think. I'm sort of just hypothesizing what might be. Yeah, I, I think in, in the US in particular, I think your argument, the, whole, the first part of your argument, mm. that is, you know, that they're going into these high paying fields. In those cases, I think it's mainly greed. You think uh, it's financial? Yeah, because yeah. Uh, because you get into such large debt that you need to make money. No, that's true. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I've, I never had any debt mm. because you don't, uh, you don't need to do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a different situation there. Mm. If, if you could witness a conversation between any two people of history, like who would it be? <laughs> Dead or alive? Oh, uh, Hmm. Probably Napoleon and Alexander Hamilton, okay. because Napoleon was so good in many domains, but he actually sucked at economics. Mm. He was he was a genius in basically all fields except economics, and that that one thing caused him to basically be. It was a stupid move of him to go into Russia. Okay, there's no debate about that. It was very stupid, but and it, it was also a stupid move of him to fight a two front war. I really don't know anything about Napoleon. All oh, right, but anyway, he he was he fought. I had some flavor. Yeah. Like I think it's, I, I think I love this answer. It's cool. But but Napoleon did these two big mistakes. Okay. And the reason he did it was because he was forced to fight an economic war uh-huh. with Britain, and Britain completely outplayed him in the economic sense. Right. And he didn't understand economic policy, so he he basically had a lot of high tariffs and stuff like mm-hmm. that, which you know that's going to lower trade, so which was a bad idea because he needed to trade. But he thought he could just impose that because he was so powerful. But he was wrong because he didn't understand the market. Mm. He, he didn't understand the free market. Okay. And then uh, because of that, he was later forced into fighting these wars that he could have prevented if he just know, known his economics. And Alexander Hamilton was really good at economics. So he could probably have schooled Napoleon, Napoleon on that. Really? Yeah, and if, and if he had prevented that, we would be living in a completely different world, I think. Yeah. That's such a funny alternative history possibility. Yeah. Did they ever cross paths though? No, no, but they were kind of in the same generation. So you're more just saying like if Napoleon had good economic advice. Or <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is Alex Hamilton mean something to you or you just really like him as an economic figurehead? Uh, well, well, you know, he was uh, one of the founding fathers in the United States. Mm. And he is probably, in, it's hard to say because all of these founding fathers were such like intellectual leviathans, mm. really smart in so many different fields. And they made such big contributions. But I think Hamilton was probably the most influential of the bunch because he made many of the systems that uh, the US has to this day. So he, in terms of impacting the modern world, he is one of the most influential people in history. Mm. For example, he created the federal, the, what became later the Federal Reserve. Okay, wow. Like the, basically the national banking system. And he also made a bunch of other stuff. But that's probably the biggest one. Well, I really like that answer. Huh. And um, also, you've, you've got to go, but I also really appreciate you giving me all this time as well. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it, man.
I just want to surround myself with really good people. And I think that I can, I can, I don't know. I, I do have a lot of admiration for you and, and what, you, what you've done and like the sort of discipline and, and writing a book. I think it's really cool. And I really, and I've listened to your voice a lot as well. Like I said before. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, thanks man. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.